my name is A.D. Daisley. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And if you've been with us for the past several months, um, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And we are finally at the end of Mark, Mark chapter 16. So we'll be looking at the last section of verses in the book of Mark. And I've titled this sermon, Believe. I've titled this sermon, Believe, because belief is something that's extremely important. And one of the things I'm going to do at the beginning is to give several reasons why belief is important. But we're here in the final appearances of Jesus Christ. He's not performing miracles like how he was like in, in his earthly ministry. He's not like preaching to, to, to people. Like he's not contending with the religious leaders. He's appearing, and he's appearing to his disciples. And he's giving them a foretaste of what this resurrection experience is all about. And if you read the different Gospels, each one of the Gospels has a different focus. If you read the entire Gospels, and especially the appearance part, you can read the, the different uh, accounts of the story of Jesus revealing himself. And there are certain things that stand out. And for me, one of the main things that stood out to me regarding this particular section of Scripture is the contrast between belief and unbelief. And so why is belief important? Well, the first reason is that belief is central to the call of Christ. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So right from the onset, Jesus' first message was to repent and to believe. Second reason why belief is important is because belief is central to understanding righteousness. Genesis 15 verse 6 says, And he believed, referring to Abraham, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, righteousness was never obtained by one's actions. It was never obtained by obedience, but it was by belief. Belief is also central to salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So belief is central to salvation. Belief is also central to pleasing God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Belief is central to pleasing God. We can keep going. Belief is central to receiving anything from God. James chapter 1 verse 6. And it says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For well, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. To receive anything from God, there needs to be belief. Belief is also central to God working through us. If you can remember, um, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 19, it says, when the disciples were having difficulty casting out the demon, and they asked Jesus, why can we cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. In order for God to work through us, there needs to be faith. There needs to be belief. Finally, belief is central to understanding the works and identity of Christ. 
This is what it says in John chapter 37, um, John chapter 10, verse 37. And it says, if I am doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And later in John chapter 14, he says, believe that I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on the accounts on account of the works themselves, that the works confirmed who he was. But the religious leaders did not want to hear it. They didn't understand. And so, as Jesus is meeting with his disciples, one of the things that he confronts is their unbelief. And so belief is central to every part of the Christian life, to believing in God for salvation, to being able to do any kind of good works and in order to do anything, in order to please God, there must be belief. So we enter the story in Mark chapter 16, and we're going to pick up at verse 9. Mark chapter 16, and we'll start at verse 9. It says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus had a real good sense of humor, because for a person, you know, sometimes a person's reputation kind of follows them. And for a person that had a history of demon possession, like this is the first person you're going to reveal yourself to, and she's going to be the person that's going to tell the story, like really? And so who is this Mary Magdalene? Well, scriptures say several things about her. In Luke chapter 8, the scriptures say that she was among those who were dependent on Jesus for healing. And it says in uh, Luke chapter 8, it says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. She's one of those ladies who... Um, who had demons who Jesus actually had cast out demons from her. We also see that in Matthew chapter 27 that she was among those who ministered to Jesus and was also present when he was crucified. Matthew chapter 27 says, uh, Matthew 27 55 says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance whom had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the, mothers, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So she was present with Jesus during his ministry and also when he was crucified. We also see that she was among the women at his burial, at the burial of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 60. It says, and he, referring to Joseph when he had uh, rolled a stone, that he had rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. Matthew 28. She was among the women who went early to prepare the body of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And finally, in John chapter 20, when the disciples all left because they did not see Jesus in the tomb, she stayed at the tomb. Listen to what John chapter 20, starting at verse 8, says. 
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, speaking of John the Baptist, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, the, the disciple John, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. So one of the things we see about Mary is that she was always there. She's always showing up. She's always present. And if we had to sum up all the scriptures that we just read, we first see a person who was in deep need of Jesus because of her, of her demonic possession. We see someone who was willing to serve Jesus during his earthly ministry. We see someone who was mourning Jesus when he was crucified. We see someone who was there to anoint his body when he was buried. And even when he was resurrected, she just wanted to be at the last place where she knew that Jesus was. And that's when Jesus showed up and appeared to her. In John chapter 20, verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And my first point is this, that Jesus reserves an exclusive intimacy for those whose heart anticipate his presence. That Jesus reserves an exclusive intimacy for those hearts that anticipate his presence. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah, chapter 20, 29, verse 12. It says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And even the scripture that was just read, it's crazy, Anthony read it. Psalm chapter 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me Jesus comes through for those who wait for him for those who anticipate him Jesus comes through he offers himself and verse 10 says, She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and that, and that he had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And so you can imagine Mary 
full of anticipation, wanting to share this awesome news that she saw the risen Christ. And imagine if you're so excited about something and you want to go and you want to share it with somebody, but they're just like, eh, nah, I'm not buying it. All right? Imagine the disappointment she might have felt. And she's talking about the 11 disciples. In verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And as they went back and told the rest, they did not believe. So again, they're getting two different reports from two totally different people, and they're just not getting it. They're not getting it. From Luke chapter 24, we understand that the name of one of those people was Cleopas, and this is like the only time he's mentioned in Scripture, which is kind of crazy, right? Um, and he's the one that gives the report to the other disciples that they have seen Jesus. Now, I kind of find it a little bit odd that Jesus didn't just reveal himself first to the 11 disciples. I mean, I would think that if it was anybody that you would reveal yourself to first, it would probably be, be them. But for whatever reason, God chose to reveal himself to Mary and to Cleopas and the other disciple whose name is not mentioned before he actually reveals himself to the other disciples. And it's interesting that the disciples' response to both of those individuals was unbelief. It was unbelief. This great news that Jesus is alive was not received, was not welcomed. It was received with unbelief. And so my point number two is this, that unbelief hinders our ability to experience the intimacy that Jesus has reserved for us. That unbelief hinders our ability to experience the intimacy that Jesus has reserved for us. You may even recall in the ministry of Christ that there were certain places where Jesus went that he couldn't do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now I'm here to say today that unbelieving hearts will have a very difficult time experiencing the intimacy and the power of God. Unbelief interferes with that intimacy that God has for us. In verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So now he's dealing with the disciples, and he's saying, this is a testimony from people that you, like, you know Mary. You know Mary. You know her story. You know she's been with me. You, you know she's been a part of, of the, this ministry that I've been a part of. And what should have evoked joy in the disciples, what should have believed, uh, evoked a sense of hope, what should have evoked a sense of joy, evoked unbelief. And it's possible for us as believers, even though we may believe in God for salvation, that our hearts are still filled with unbelief in terms of how God relates to us. I think a lot of times we think of belief as just kind of like this mental thing where it's like, you know, intellectually I believe the information, but functionally we can live in, in ways that kind of contradict the fact that we actually do believe him. 
In our heart, we can believe God for salvation, but we don't believe that he's actually good to us. We can believe God for salvation, but we don't believe that God has our best interest at heart. It's possible to believe God for salvation, but to not trust his timing and to want to do things in our own timing. And the good news today is that Jesus came to deal with our unbelieving hearts. But the first thing he has to do is to expose that unbelief. And if we're willing to stay around long enough, God can help to deal with our unbelieving hearts. And so in verse 15, it continues. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I think it's ironic that he even says this because these disciples did not believe the testimony of Mary and Cleopas, but now Jesus is telling them to go out and proclaim, right? And so now the disciples are moving from unbelief to belief to now proclamation. So now he's saying that you guys will go and you will proclaim this good news to the world. And one of the questions I had, too, was the motivation for doing this. And if you've known the, the, the Lord for a while, you know, you've probably been on mission trips. You've probably gone out and shared your faith with other people. And I think there's a sense in which we can begin to do this out of a sense of mere obligation because the Bible said to, to, to do it, therefore we do it. But I just want to make a point that there's a freedom that God gives us when we proclaim out of a sense of being awed by something. So if you can just imagine somebody who is trying to get pregnant and finally, you know, this lady gets pregnant, that they share that news. It just comes from a different place. It comes from a different place because they have been awed and they've been amazed by what God has done, that it just comes across in a different way. Or if you find out that you got a job that you were really looking for, and the way that things have just materialized was just beyond your being able to explain in, in, in human ways. Um, it just comes across differently. And I think one of the things that God wants to do is for our hearts to truly be awed in his presence and to proclaim from that place of being awed by him. This word proclamation actually means to herald, to make an official announcement and they're able to only do that because they've been awed by the news of his resurrection. And continuing in verse 16. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And the Gospel of John also tells us too as well that those who don't believe are condemned already. And so for those who are believed and baptized, they will be saved. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of that spiritual drink. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 5, that you must be born of the water and the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. 
And then he continues in verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. The signs will accompany those who believe. Believe what? Well, believe the gospel. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there are signs that believers have that would confirm that these are individuals who have believed the message of God. And he gives a list of them. In verse 17, in my name they will cast out demons. This is God displaying his authority over every aspect of the, uh, the immaterial realm through us. The believers are simply just conduits through which God is operating in the world. In my name. And I think one of the dangers is when we begin to read these signs is that the signs become central. The signs become central and they're not. It's important to keep in mind that the signs are not central, nor is the messenger central. That the centrality has to be on Jesus and the message that he gives. So the first one is that in my name, they will cast out demons. Number two, continuing in verse 17, they will speak in new tongues. And this is God miraculously enabling believers to communicate truth in different languages. We see that most clearly in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Verse 18, the third sign, that they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. This is God's divine display of protection and preservation power through us. We read in Acts chapter 28 where Paul was actually bitten by a viper. He went to a particular city, and there was a viper that had bit him, and he was able to shake it off, and he was not harmed, Scripture says in Acts chapter 28, verse 3. God displaying his divine protection and preservation power through us. And then the last one, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And this is God displaying his healing ability through us. All of these signs are not for the messenger, and it's not for the, uh, the, the purpose of just uh, a show or an exhibit, but it's to confirm the message of the gospel, and his call is still for us to believe. And so verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The phrase sat down is important because it speaks of completion. It speaks of Jesus finishing the assignment that God had given him to do. And sitting down at the right hand means that Jesus had all authority given to him. Sitting at the right hand of God. It's a place of honor. And it also states that what Jesus did was approved by the Father. That it was sufficient. And so now that Jesus has completed the work, he's revealed himself to his disciples 
He's called out their unbelief. He calls them to believe. And he calls us to believe as well, too. I want to end in a couple questions. And the first is, where are you struggling to believe God? Because it is possible, again, for us to believe God for salvation, but still be in unbelief regarding how God operates with us. Question number one, does my life reflect that I believe that he is good? Do I believe that he is good? Does does my life reflect that? The way that I carry myself, does it communicate the message that I believe that God is good? Number two, does my life reflect that I believe that he cares for me? Do I believe that he cares for me? Does my life also reflect the fact that I trust him with my life? When we say that we trust God for salvation, a lot of us think future. But the way that we live from day to day reflects that we want to take things into our own hands. And number four, does my life reflect that he's my heart's main pursuit? Is he our main pursuit? I think for some of us, what makes Jesus attractive is the stuff that he can get us. Right? If he can get me the job I want, if he can get me the spouse I desire, that's what makes Jesus attractive. And today I hope that the beauty of Christ himself, apart from all the stuff that he could do, would be sufficient enough for all of us. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When Christ transforms our hearts, 
we begin to look a little bit differently on our past accomplishments. They're not as significant anymore in comparison to the value of knowing him. And not only does it change our perspective on our past accomplishments, but it also changes our current and our future pursuits, that we're not driven by the same things anymore, that our consuming passion for Christ is what becomes most valuable to us. I think for some, we desire Jesus and success. We desire Jesus plus something else. And Jesus is saying, trust in me. Am I sufficient? And so today, many of us may proclaim to know Christ and to trust Jesus. But I would ask that we just take some time to assess our hearts and our lives in the way that we live. Does it truly reflect belief in God, to trust him with our lives, to trust him with our problems, to trust him with the pain that we have, to trust him with the things that we cannot solve? It's one thing to believe Jesus for salvation, but that also applies to how we live our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, your call for us to believe has not changed. Belief has always been a part of the economy of God from the Old Testament to the New. And even in the beginning of your earthly ministry, Lord, you called us to repent and to believe. God, I pray for our hearts that are so subject to doubt, to unbelief. And for those who are here today, Lord, who struggle to believe that you are working all things for your good, for our good and for your glory. God, that you would expose the unbelief, Lord God, and help us where our faith is weak, where our trust is weak, Lord God, as human beings, God, we are so vulnerable to doubt and to unbelief, Lord, and we need a work of God to change unbelieving hearts to belief, Lord. I thank you that you finished the work, that you completed the work, and you sat down at the right hand of the Father, Lord God, that you've done everything for us, for our righteousness, for our salvation. And I think about the many people who saw you do miracles and they still left unchanged. God, I pray that that would not be the case today, Lord, that you would work belief into our hearts. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.